Welcome to the 13th podcast in our First Peter sermon series, Through the Fire. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is a live stream from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Bruce Bentley will be continuing our series with a sermon called, Today's Suffering, Tomorrow's Victory. Amen. Well, welcome everyone. Glad that you're here in person. Glad that you're watching at home. We do look forward to Advent and Christmas and all the things that make that special. And I'm not talking about the presents. I'm not talking about shopping for Christmas trees this early. I don't know who would do that, right? Uh, But what we do look forward to is Advent and the coming of Christ as Emmanuel. And as Joanne mentioned, those care packages will be coming soon all to help us as a family, as the family of God, to prepare for what matters most at Christmas time. So just a quick reminder, this is Communion Sunday. We have small little cups here, if you're here in the room looking at me right now, that are in the back. So if you didn't grab one of those, you've got you know, time here to go grab one of those quick. It is a two-in-one deal, the cup for juice and a little wafer on top. If you are watching at home, then Feel free to go grab something little to eat and something to drink after that, and you can join in as, as well as we can, uh, fellowshipping around the table, uh, wherever our table is this morning. So grab something at home and have that ready at the end of the service for a communion time. We are getting down to the end of the book of 1 Peter, where we've been at for at least 12 Sundays right now. So I want to give you an idea of how we're going to end this series, Okay. We've covered a number of different things, and as we come to the close, uh, this is where we're going to be at. This morning, we look to Christ for the point of all this talk about suffering, and then after that, suffering and ceasing from sinning, Peter draws our attention into our personal lives, and then suffering and joyful service, what does suffering look like as part of the church, uh, the body of Christ together? And then the next steps through the fire, the very closing thoughts. How do we live? How do we now live in response to what Peter is talking about? So many times I have mentioned to you, many of these Sundays through 1 Peter, I've mentioned this. But Peter is not giving us a list of moral to-dos. Do these things and you will live as if you can impress God and make yourself a better person before him in view of him. He's not doing that. Paul doesn't do it in his letters either. It's important for us to always keep in mind we can't do things in order to earn our salvation, but we have these things that Peter is giving us to remember that because we now live in Christ, we can do all that he has for us. All of these reminders are important because they flow from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Do these things because you live. And that is especially important to remember within the context of what Peter is talking about because doing things because you live isn't always easy, especially living in times that are hard. We've talked about that a number of times, uh, Peter's audience in his letter. 
Suffering can be huge. It can mean persecution. Many believers around the world today suffer under persecution. We don't have any clue of what persecution looks like, really, honestly, as believers. But there is suffering in kind of incremental levels. There are things that come our way, and oh boy, have we had them this year. Am I right? Things that we normally appreciate, enjoy, take for granted even as a church, and how churches function, and that has not happened this year for the most part. So that is a kind of an incremental uh, raising of the issues that kind of affect the church that kind of does bring in suffering. Now, I'm not saying anybody's trying to persecute the church right now in America. I'm not going that far. It's incremental. There's little steps that make it difficult. And we are in that place, maybe, as Christians right now and as the church, maybe the church universal, okay? So that's going on. This series, this series through the fire, brings us up to the point where we really need to consider what does it mean to be a believer when some of those things that we enjoy, usually take for granted, begin to be pulled away. What is our response? What's our response personally? my relationship with Christ, what is my response corporately with my my relationship with all all of you, the body of Christ, as it uh, functions or maybe as it dysfunctions, okay? So we'll be looking at those things as we finish up uh, this letter here. And this morning, we bring our focus into chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Uh, If I had a top five of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to try to understand, this would be one of them. Even Martin Luther, it's a good thing I mentioned him, Reformation time, right? Uh, even Martin Luther, at the end of the day, he said, I don't know, I don't get it. He didn't say it exactly like that. But he said he didn't know exactly how to interpret it. So we're not putting ourselves above Martin Luther. All I'm saying is this is one of the most trickiest passages that we're going to start charting through. So let me say this. If you've ever been frustrated, frustrated with reading the Bible, I get that. And you're in good company. When it gets difficult to read the Bible and understand it, any part of the Bible, just remember this. God didn't give us the Bible to confuse us. Sometimes we got to slow down. That when you read it, just because you read some verses and the first time you read it, you go, I don't get that. That is weird. I don't understand. Yeah, I mean, if we're all honest, we all do that sometimes. Slow down, read it again, okay? Look for the main themes. Observe, you know, practice observing things that stand out, words that are repeated, all sorts of things you can do like you do anything else that you have to read and understand, okay? Any other document that seems foreign at first, it's filled with legalese or whatever. Uh, slow down, uh, start pulling it apart piece by piece. Look for major themes. Look for the flow of the verses, and then you begin to understand really, truly what's going on. Now, we've said in the past, I'll say it again, every time Peter, many times Paul, when they start talking about what it means to be a believer, they get passionate about Jesus. And I love that. So as we've considered even the difficulty of suffering in response to the, the, the outside stuff that's, that's bringing about situations we don't like, Even in the midst of that, as Peter continues to build his letter, he keeps coming back to Jesus. Chapter 1, 
verses 18 through 21, he comes back to the fact that we are ransomed with Christ's blood. Chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, he repeats or he copies a number of verses from Isaiah chapter 53, reinforcing what he already said in the first chapter about Jesus and his blood and the fact that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross. He brings that back to our attention. Don't lose sight of that. And then here in chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, he does it again. Keep Jesus in your eyeballs, okay? We cannot stray in any, even when, especially when things are looking really good and easy and comfortable. Don't lose sight of Jesus and how he and his sacrifice and his blood on the cross, how that changes everything. Let's read those verses together. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What's the point of the suffering? What is the, why does God put us through any believer? No matter what incremental, no matter what state you're at or place you're at in life, no matter how much heat you feel, what's the point? What is God up to in our lives? Suffering, he even mentioned last week, we looked at chapter three, suffering for doing good, even if you suffer for doing good. Keeping that in mind. But who wants to do that? What is the point of that? And then at this point, Peter brings us back to Jesus and Jesus' suffering. And this is the passage we just read kind of takes us on a little mini journey, okay? At the beginning, you noticed Jesus' suffering, okay? Keep this in mind. And then where does it end? Victory. There is a no doubt, absolute, uh, firm kind of uh, principle we can take from this that kind of covers all of that passage and it's on the screen right now. Jesus turns today's suffering into tomorrow's victory. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not a proponent of health and wealth gospel. I'm not saying name it and claim it. I'm not saying any of that stuff. Listen to the words. See where he begins and where he ends. Believer, brother and sister in Christ, the difficulties, the struggles, the suffering is not the end. But the way Jesus works takes us through that every time. There is no way around it. There's no way we can uh, somehow get a pass, uh, get out of jail free card, whatever it is. It's not a game. Jesus takes his church through suffering, and that's the pattern. And if you need to see the beginning or the reason for the pattern, you look to the life of Jesus, and that is exactly what Peter does for us this morning. 
It is his plan, Jesus' plan for the church. So let me just insert this. I had a good conversation, a long conversation, a number of conversations with a longtime friend of mine this past week. And we talked about suffering. And we talked about physical pain. And we talked about problems with relationships. And the struggle that life brings in general that happen to us and sometimes, most of the time probably, that just catch us unawares, blindside. And there we are in the thick of garbage again wondering what's going on. Let me just say this in response to the idea of suffering. Nothing is wasted with Jesus and everything is redeemed ultimately for the glory of God. Keep that in your mind and in your heart. Let me say it again. Nothing is wasted with Jesus. You cannot say, and, and I know, I know if this is challenged, and maybe you're scoffing at what I just said, but believe me, God is sovereign. We sang about that this morning. It's not just empty words that we just throw out. God is king. Jesus will not waste any ounce of the suffering that he puts his church through. All will be redeemed to the glory of God. And everything will be set right before his throne. So be confident in that. And confidence, that confidence, comes from this passage. Okay? Now, what do I mean by that? Today's suffering, tomorrow's victory. Three different things I see that kind of come out of this passage that we need to focus on. Uh, first of all, Christ suffered completely. His suffering on the cross atones for all of my sin. He took care of my unrighteousness, and then out of my unrighteousness, he creates righteousness. In other words, a right relationship with God. I can be close to the creator of the universe. And it's not because of anything that I've done or accomplished. It is all because of what Jesus has done. What does he say? He says Christ suffered for sins. He says that, that Christ brings us to God. And when he says that, what he's doing is tying us back into all of this rich theology from the original testament, okay? So he doesn't use the word atonement, but he's linking us to that very firm theological idea of atonement. What is atonement? It is simply this. It is the work that God does to bring sinners back to himself. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us back to God. That, in a nutshell, in Peter's words, is this idea of atonement. Now, that assumes that we don't have a relationship with God. That assumes that things are broken. To, just to the fact he's saying, bring us back to God, where am I in the first place, right? So maybe you struggle with this idea of sin, or I'm not that kind of a person, or I'm not that bad of a person. Sin is basically any kind of rebellion from God. It is in any way saying, my way is the way. Because that's rebellion. That's saying, you don't have my best interests, that your plan isn't the best, that I can figure this out on myself, thank you very much. 
That is rebellion. That's, that's putting myself really in the place of God. And, and if that, I mean, that's been the case since the Garden of Eden. We've looked at that as we've studied on our way through Scripture. That has been the problem of all mankind. Anytime any person or any group of people says, it's my way and not your way, I've got this better than you, where does that bring us? Not just personal problems, but corporate worldwide problems. The big picture of Scripture keeps bringing us back to that. We don't need additional stories. We keep getting them uh, throughout of all of human history. We've got everything we need in what the Bible reveals to us. That kind of brokenness, that kind of self-serving, uh, self-worship, that kind of placing myself in the place of God, that all of that continues to reinforce this rebellious sin kind of thing. I cannot and I am not God and I cannot put myself close to God. Jesus knows that and why that is why he comes to bring us back to God in this work of atonement. In fact, uh, I said the word isn't uh, there, that atonement word isn't there, but in fact what he's describing, what Peter is describing for us is, I'll even throw out a bigger, longer word, substitutionary atonement. You ever heard that before? That Jesus puts himself in our place. He takes our rebellion on himself. He puts himself in that place so we can receive all that he has, all of his rightness or righteousness in the first place. Now, again, Peter is talking about what happened in the original Testament. There's this awesome passage in the book of Leviticus. Anybody read Leviticus? All right, two people, okay? Not a whole lot of people spend their devotional time in Leviticus because it is mostly about the ancient Old Testament, original Testament laws that come out of the law of Moses. But there is this beautiful passage, it's Leviticus 16, that shows us the world, the ideas, the framework that Peter has when he talks about becoming right before God and how Jesus, once for all, he says, right? How Jesus can do once for all what all of the original Testament laws could not accomplish. Jesus does it in his life once and for all. Leviticus 16 gives us this uh, Jewish approach from the Old Testament about what the atonement is. And there's really two aspects of uh, things, that, two things that are going on that combined together make for atonement, okay? So chapter 16, the law is given, the instructions are given to the high priest. And at that time, the high priest is Aaron. Aaron has to do uh, all these uh, ritual sacrifices to cleanse himself before he can go into the temple. He goes into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, the holiest time and through the whole calendar, the whole calendar year. Aaron prepares himself, does the sacrifices to cover his own sins, and then his attention as the high priest goes to the sins of the people. And as Leviticus 16 describes, there are two goats that are part of the law at this point. Two goats have to be, two male goats have to be brought before the people. Aaron casts lots for the goats. One goat becomes a sacrifice on the altar. And there's another fancy word for that, uh, you didn't know you're going to have so many big, you know, complicated words this morning. But here we go. Propitiation. And all that means is this. 
It's removing the holy wrath of God at sin. God cannot just say, I won't care about it today because he is completely, perfectly holy. And every sin and every rebellion is a problem. And because God takes sin so seriously, there has to be a sacrifice. Now, we don't have the time this morning to go into the deeper theological meaning and understanding of that. It is important still today, especially when people say, oh, the wrath of God and blood sacrifice, that's so ancient, and that's so old school, and I don't even want to think that God would want to do that. But it underscores the seriousness of sin. God doesn't want to kill anybody. He does not take joy in sacrifice. He doesn't want blood pouring out anywhere. He doesn't want that. But he does demand a perfect relationship from his people, or else you are cut off. It is that serious. Sin is that serious. It demands a sacrifice. So that first goat, the castellot, the first goat is then sacrifice, uh, sacrifice for the sins of the people to turn away the, the holy wrath of God in the face of sin. But that's only the first goat. Here's the second goat. And that's the last uh, big word for us this morning, expiation. Aaron, the priest, takes his hands. He puts them on the head of the goat. And all of the sins of the nation of Israel, he confesses on the head of that goat. I don't know how long it takes him to actually do that. I, I often wondered about that. How many sins does he actually recount? I, you know, how many are, are required to be verbalized? It could take quite some time, right? So I don't know how he summarizes that, but he does with his hands on that goat. And then what? The goat is, is uh, another person takes the goat and they throw it out in the wilderness somewhere and get rid of it. So that goat just takes off somewhere out in the wilderness. And that is symbolic of what has actually happened. So not only is the wrath of God satisfied in that awful thing called um, an offering, but also the sin and the guilt is carried away. It, expiation means to cancel or dismiss the sin. It goes away, not just for a little while. Before God, it goes away for good. The law and the atonement requires both of those things. Now, we're going to get into that more carefully as we apply it to our lives, uh, but it's so necessary that we understand where Peter's coming from. When Jesus atones, he takes care of the wrath of the Father, and he also takes our sin and throws it away. Isn't it an awesome thought? Just to begin with that this morning, in that one verse, that is the love of God for a people who could care less about God. He chose to love you and me in that complete, sacrificial, awesome, loving, kindness kind of way that never ends. Can you say amen? That is who Jesus is and what he does. So that's our beginning here. Let's move on. Not only did he suffer completely, but Christ preached patiently. Uh, and that's where the rest of those verses, that's where Peter takes us this morning. He tells us about how Christ has been patiently preaching repentance, and he takes us all the way back to who? To this guy Noah, right, and the ark. And we already talked about him in our series going through Genesis, but it's so interesting that he brings us back to that again. What does he say? Uh, where am I here? All right, there we go. 
being put to death in the flesh, but, may, may, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What in the world's going on there? A lot of confusion and interpreters for centuries have tripped up on this passage alone, okay? Let us uh, chart our way through it as carefully as we can, but also as timely as we can this morning. What's not going on is this. This passage does not teach that Jesus physically or bodily descended into hell. Doesn't teach that. Uh, it's not even in the earliest creeds or even in the earliest form of the Apostles' Creed. That's a confusion that got inserted a century or two later uh, and it tripped up people for a long time after that. So don't think that it says he goes into hell. It doesn't say that. In fact, the earliest version of the Apostles' Creed uh, says he descended to the dead. Whole different idea, right? Because he physically died on the cross. So uh, at least Peter is stressing to the church, past uh, and present, that Christ is patient and he, you know what? He has always been patient. He speaks of, Peter speaks of being made alive in the Spirit. So Peter wants us to consider this perfect example of Christ pre-incarnate, okay? Hasn't come in the flesh as a baby yet, even many centuries before that. Christ pre-incarnate work to show us, to remind us just how patient God has always been. So Peter doesn't answer all our questions on that, but he does give us this main theme. Christ was preaching to people that needed to be brought near in patience long before his earthly ministry began. P Peter even says way back in chapter 1, verse 11, that the Spirit of Christ had already spoken through the Old Testament prophets. So here in chapter 3, he's going back to that idea. Does that make sense? There's a connection there, that Jesus was speaking through the prophet Noah at the time that Noah was chosen by God, okay? He was blameless in his generation. That's what Moses tells us about Noah back in the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verse 9. So he was a blameless guy. He's speaking prophetically this whole time that he stands blameless before his neighbors, before the people at, of his day and age. This whole time, he's been speaking about God. He's been speaking about redemption. I would say the whole time he's considered blameless by God up until the moment that door of the ark closes. We don't know how many years that is, but I think Peter's telling us that whole time God is giving people patiently waiting and giving them a chance yet this day one more minute longer to repent, to come back to him. And that shouldn't be hard for us to believe. Why? Because God has always been patient. Noah is just one example of that. The Canaanites, there was a time appointed, really, by the time Joshua and the Israelites come into Canaan, and there is the, uh, the directive, if you will, by God to drive out those people that is part of the covenant promise he gives his people. But for who knows how long before that, God was patient with those people, giving them a chance to repent, to come back to him. Jonah and Nineveh, the Ninevites, 
Jonah tried to run away. Uh, God was patient with the people of Nineveh. Their wickedness was extreme, yet God gave them another chance through Jonah to repent and come back to him. Israel had centuries, all of the prophets that God sent to his own people. Now we're talking about the, the pagans or the Ninevites or the Canaanites or anybody else. We're talking about God's own people. And he, he was still patient with them, sending more prophets, giving them more opportunities before judgment finally came. God is patient with his church. So many times and so many ways, from the book of Acts till now, 2,000 2,000 years, God has been patient with his people to get on his agenda for the church, for our own lives, to be reminded through his living word of what it is the church should be about and what it isn't. And yes, suffering comes to purify the church, to remind believers, wake up, get your eyes back on Jesus and off of your immorality and off of your idols and off of your busyness, and out of your comfort zone, and so forth. Do we have 2,000 years of, of a witness as the church of God's patience with his people, and also he is patient with us individually. He does not desire, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, for anyone uh, to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And it's been argued by a lot of scholars in that letter, in 2 Peter, guess what? He's who is he talking to? First of all, primarily, he's talking to the church. He is patient with you. He doesn't want you to be in a place of judgment. He wants the church to come to repentance. So you don't point your finger immediately at anybody else. You point it here. God is patient with his people. So if there's anything we take out of this passage, yeah, we could discuss all day long all the other peculiarities and, and complicated things, but this is the big one. This is what we cannot miss. God is patient with us. And that means we have a time, this time, even yet today, to repent. And remember what we talked about repent? Repent means to turn, to do the 180. So if you, believer, friend, brother and sister, whoever you are, if you, even if you have declared uh, uh, that you're a Christian at some point in your life, but if you've been on a pattern or in a lifestyle that has rejected God's way, he has been patient with you. You don't know how much longer you've got. None of us do, but you've got right now. Repent. Turn. Come back to Jesus. Jesus has done all that is necessary for you to actually do that. Just wake up. Realize of what, what you've done is rebellion and turn to him. He has been patient. Don't push it. Repent. That's what he's telling us. Now, one more. Today's suffering, tomorrow's victory. Christ suffered completely. He preached patiently. And Christ lives victoriously. He says in these verses, I don't know if I've got them on here or not. Yes. Uh, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. That's where he left off. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Here's what that means for us. 
your old life becomes a new life in him. Peter links Noah with baptism, which is kind of a hard stretch for us, but it really isn't when you consider what's going on. Noah's flood, the same water that flooded at least the known earth at that time, the same water that brings judgment brings his family to salvation. Same water. Baptism, in a similar way. Even baptism, what, what we just did last month, or yeah, it's November now. So back in September, the baptism service that we had, a number of people, they, they came forward, they get into the water, they come out. It's symbolism, going down into death, coming out into new life. That's really what baptism is. It links water with that, the end of judgment, because Jesus took that in our place, substitutionary atonement, and then we are raised up into new life. That water that brings death also brings life. Noah, baptism, they come together in that way, okay? So, we're brought through judgment. Those of you who are believers, you're brought through judgment into a new relationship that is based on Christ and what he's done for you. If you have not been baptized, if you've not taken the time to consider uh, where your life has gone uh, because of Christ, if you have not uh, slowed down to think about, you know, should I be baptized or not, I'd love to talk to you. Let's get that done. It's getting a little chilly out right now, okay, for a few months. But that doesn't mean we have to stop baptisms. We'll figure out a way. We'll break the ice. We'll do whatever it takes, okay, to make that happen for you. Great way for you, and not just as a recommitment kind of idea, but as a solidifying of the commitment that you've already made. So your old guilt becomes a clean conscience in Christ. The dirt from the body, it's already been removed. That's what he's saying. The forgiveness we have, the cleansing that we have because of what Jesus has done, that has done its work. That is removed. Your baptism with water, what does he say? It's an appeal to God uh, that we have a clean conscience. Now think about that for a second. The worries, the insecurities, the doubts that you have, they are dealt with. There is an appeal through that baptism. Remember? Remember when you've been baptized, remember what that uh, signifies, the symbolic nature of that. I'm clean before Jesus. Now we'll get to that in just a second, a little bit more on that. So uh, let's get back to those goats. Couple things that happen all the time. They've happened in my life. Maybe they've happened in your life as a believer. Look at that first one. God's angry with me and I know it. I need a, I need a do-over with Jesus. I need to recommit. I need to ask him into my life or into my heart again. Have you ever done that before? Uh, that's, that was kind of the, the, the mode of life I had as a young Christian. I've blown it so many times recently. I need to recommit. I need to ask Jesus back into my life. Jesus never went anywhere. That whole time I was screwing up. I just didn't realize that, or I didn't remember that. Why? Because I didn't know anything about propitiation and what Jesus had already done for me completely. So even though I have doubts, the doubts that I have, the struggles that I have, they don't erase what Jesus did once for all time in my life and in your life too. We already read this morning as a, as a part of our worship from Jeremiah, and we also read from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
His work is perfect. And in fact, when Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished, he wasn't just talking about that moment in time or even his death at that time. All of what needed to be done for your life was done. It's finished. Remember that and praise God for that. He has done all that was necessary to remove sin and to remove guilt from your life. So that's the first thing we've got to remember. What's the second goat? You know, even though that goat was kicked out in the wilderness, he comes wandering back every once in a while, doesn't he? He finds his, you know, his little sniffers going, whatever, and he finds his way back to the camp. Or in other words, he finds his way back to our lives. That even though he was taken out and all that guilt is removed, he comes wandering back into our minds and our hearts. The past, in other words, keeps haunting. Ah, and as a the devil is an accuser, but he, he's a liar and he's an accuser. He will accuse you and me every minute of every day. Remember when you did? Remember when you said? Remember when you thought? You, is this ringing a bell with anybody? That goes on in my life all the time, accusing me. Remember when? That's why we've got to keep expiation in our minds and our hearts. We read from Jeremiah 31, and it ends with what? I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. It's not like God uh, suffers from amnesia, okay? He chooses to remove the sin. It is not in front of him. It is not between God and you. When he looks at you, he's not seeing the sin because why? It's been removed. Remember that. Stand firm in the fact that he has removed it. Every time you're accused, every time you doubt and question, and that, that thought comes back in, stand on what Scripture tells us. He's removed it, and he remembers it no more. Your old troubles, I said that slide earlier, are transformed into a new certain eternity because Christ is victor. He stands victorious. All these powers are now under his authority. What are they? They are everything. There is nothing left out of his supremacy in all of these things. And uh, Paul uh, goes at all sorts of detail in that in the book of Colossians. But let me just read this one passage here from 2 Corinthians that applies to all of us, especially as we move from this moment to our communion time and fellowship time with him, remembering Christ as victor. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So, remembering Jesus, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, no matter what the suffering is, right? Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We can't see Christ standing victorious by the Father. As, as John shows us in Revelation, oh, he got to see it in, in, in a vision, I, you know, and he describes it for us in the book of Revelation. Wouldn't that be awesome to see that for just for a moment? how that would change everything to see the lamb who was slain, as John describes it, uh, 
and to see him as a, the roaring lion, the king. Remember, that's not a fantasy. Jesus is victorious over all, and everything that we sacrifice is light and momentary affliction compared to the glory of Jesus reigning forever. Lord Jesus, give us that reminder this morning in, the, in face or in view of all that we struggle with or, or in the times that suffering comes in, remind us that you are victor. None of this is wasted. All will be redeemed. And someday we get to stand before your throne with all the host of saints, singing your praises as the lamb who was slain became the king, the king forever. Show us, Lord, how to take heart and to be strengthened by your forever good news. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're continuing our series in First Peter. We also have multiple podcasts to check out, including Genesis, Crossroads, Ruth, Faithworks, and Glory. For upcoming news and events, check out our website at mycityonahill.org.